Imagine a man and a woman who have always dreamed of being missionaries from a young age. And they meet in college and they share this dream of going to foreign lands and serving Christ where people do not know him. So they go through their training, they go through their studies, they're involved with the church, they're equipped to go out, to, to be sent out, to proclaim the gospel, to, to work, to grow and build a church through acts of service and of love, of, of speaking the truths of the gospel. And they have a joy, joyous time the first weeks, months. They encounter difficulties and challenges, but they, they keep striving. They keep pressing on. They keep sharing the gospel. They are filled with joy, even a year out uh, of being sent on their mission. They immerse themselves in the culture, and they find that they, they really love the culture and love being a part of this culture. They make new friends. They end up growing a family together. And then year four or five, year ten, fast forward to those times, and things have continued to be difficult. They've in some ways forgotten about their mission. They have fallen in love with the culture. They love being in the place in which they live. They love the, the wealth that they enjoy. They love the friends that they have. They love their jobs. They love their neighborhood. They love their family. And yet, somewhere along the line, they've lost focus on the mission that they dreamed of being a part of so many years ago. That would be a really sad situation, wouldn't it? And yet, in many ways... We could say that that is true of us if we are Christians. When we first became Christians, perhaps we were excited about telling anyone and everyone we could about Jesus who saved us. We were excited about trying to show love to our neighbors, love to our coworkers. We were actively thinking, how can I, how can I share the love of Christ with them? How can I speak of the truth of Jesus Christ so that they might know him too? And yet, perhaps we've fallen in love with our culture, the wealth which we enjoy in America. We love our neighborhoods, our jobs, our families. We love our friends. And somewhere along the line, maybe we have forgotten that we have been sent out on a mission to participate with God in what he is doing and gathering his people from all the nations. Maybe it's not wealth or enjoyment in the culture that has thrown you off your mission. Maybe it has been fear or suffering. Maybe you've been through trials and these things have taken your focus on one who has been sent out by the resurrected Jesus to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Well, if any of those things resonate with you. I hope that you will be encouraged and refreshed in your understanding that you as a Christian have been sent out to proclaim Christ in love, in words, in deeds through our text this morning. In John 20, 19 through 23, we see the disciples of Jesus first are fearful and then Jesus moves them from fear to joy 
And then he sends them out. He commissions them. They are fearful disciples. They become joyful disciples. And then they become sent out disciples. And as we, as we consider this, we should consider how this applies to us in our own individual vocations and our callings in what it means for each one of us to be a sent out Christian, to be one sent out by the resurrected Lord. Consider first, as we walk through this passage, just in the first part of verse 19, these fearful disciples, this sets the, the stage, this sets the context for the words and the actions that Jesus gives to the disciples following. Notice these fearful disciples. On the evening of that day, that same day, this is Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. This is the context. This is, these are the fearful disciples. The doors are locked. They're huddled around. You don't know what they're talking about. But there's fear. They're afraid of the Jews, these opponents of Jesus, these ones who just killed their master and their Lord. We could also call them forgetful disciples, though. They're fearful disciples, but I wonder if it's owing to their for forgetfulness. Consider what day it is, Sunday. Mary had seen the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Lord, and gone back and reported to the disciples, I have seen the Lord! John looked into the tomb and saw the clothes folded up and the head cloth laying to the side, and he believed. They have forgotten on the, in the very same day what Mary had reported to them and what John had believed, and they are afraid, afraid of the hostility that faces them on the outside of those locked doors. They're forgetful not only of what had taken place that very day, they're also forgetful of the words that Jesus had spoken to them before he was crucified. You remember the words of, words of warning in John chapter 15. Flip back a few pages. John 15, 18 through 25. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He warned them. He told them, you are going to face hostility because you belong to God. I chose you out of the world. And because of this, you're going to face hatred hostility, and persecution. They had forgotten the words that Jesus spoke to them. He, he tells them in the next chapter, I'm telling you these things so that you will remember them. <laughs> They're coming up so that you won't fall away, but so that you will remember I told you these things. But not only did he give them a warning, he also gave them a promise. Right after this, this warning in John 15, in verses 26 and 27, he gives them a promise. But, so you're going to face hostility persecution, challenges, suffering. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. They are forgetful of his warnings and also of his promises. 
And that makes room in their hearts for fear. wonder which comes first. Does fear make us forget the promises of God? Or is it the forgetfulness of the promises of God that makes room for fear? There seems to be this link in this passage between their forgetfulness and the fear that they faced. And that seems true in, in other circumstances. I was thinking of an illustration for this, and I kept thinking about my dog, Violet. If you've ever been to my, my house, it's a little Jack Russell Terrier mix named Violet, and she has a cute little uh, collar with skull and crossbones on it because she's a tough girl. Well, she thinks she is sometimes. She will see a big dog sometimes, and she's ready to go after them. She's barking, she's growling, but if she gets anywhere close to them, she remembers she's this little dog, and she kind of cowers in front of them. So it can work the other way. In that case, a small, you've seen a small dog going after a big dog. They forget their smallness, their weakness temporarily. But you've also probably seen a big dog that is frightened of a tiny little thing. They're, they're forgetting their, their size and their strength that they could take this, this little rodent of a dog if they wanted to. And in the same way, when we forget the resources that we have in the promises of Jesus Christ, the things of this world can make us cower in fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, Timothy is, to, is told by Paul, we do not have a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Fear makes us forget. Forgetfulness makes room for fear and just consider for a moment over this past week the past months perhaps your own fears do you face fears of not being forgiven you you face doubts you know your own sin you know how bad you are you know your own thoughts and you wonder how could how could god forgive me Maybe you face fears of loneliness, not having a close friend, a significant other. Maybe you face fears of parenting. You're never going to measure up as a parent, and you've messed it all up. Fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear that you'll never find happiness, joy in this life. Well, in all of those things, I would encourage you to start backwards in the maze of linking your fear to the promises of God. Pair each fear that you encounter, each fear that wells up within your heart, pair that with a corresponding promise of God and let your fears be removed. Let them be displaced by these precious words of God to us about who he is, and about who we are in Christ. This is what the disciples needed to remember. Perhaps you need to hear the promises of God. Paul declares in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You are forgiven fully and freely in Christ Jesus, not because you deserve it, but because of the work of Christ on your behalf. Later in that chapter, he proclaims, Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
No suffering, no sickness, no sorrow, no rejection, no loneliness, no death can separate you from God's love for you in Christ Jesus. I will never leave you or forsake you, Jesus tells his disciples. We have piles and piles of promises from God that we need to apply to these fears so that we will not cower when hostility comes, when suffering comes, when things from the outside come, when our own thoughts come. But we need to preach these promises of God to ourselves and to one another. We, we always encourage uh, one another to, to be speaking these things to us. It's one thing to remember them, and that is encouraging, and speak them to yourselves, preach them these promises to yourselves. But there's something about hearing it from another voice, too. It might feel awkward to you to speak a promise to a brother or sister, but they desperately need it. This is what you need. This is what I need. I need you to tell me the promises of God to cast out the fears that come against me. Speak to one another. Let us reverberate the promises of God throughout our church so that we would be encouraged instead of afraid. The disciples are fearful, but Jesus shows up to remind them of his promises. And in their remembering, they forget their fears. See this in verses 19, second part of 19 and verse 20. The fearful disciples are moved to become joyful disciples. He turns these fearful disciples into joyful disciples. How does he do this? How does he get rid of their fear? How does he he reorient their minds to the truth of of who they are in in him? First of all, he gives them his presence. He stands there in their midst. The resurrected Lord Jesus is there. The doors are locked and somehow Jesus gets in. He just shows up on the scene. He gives them his presence. I'm here. Do not be afraid. But he also gives them his peace. You see this this blessing that he speaks to them. Peace be to you. He speaks it to them twice. Once in verse 19 and then the other time in verse 21. Peace be with you. And I think it's right to see this as as a blessing of of wish. But it's also... uh, you can also see it as a declaration of the peace which he has given them. Peace to you. Peace is yours. Peace belongs to you. And then in an acted parable, what does he do after he speaks these words? Peace be with you. He points to his wounds. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. As if to say, this is the peace that you have and it has been purchased by my wounds. You have objective peace with God. We have been reconciled with God through the blood of Jesus Christ who died for us. And now that objective peace, the objective reality, should have an inward subjective response. We should feel at peace because we are at peace with God. We serve a sovereign God who is in control of all things, an all-powerful, all-knowing God who is working his plan from beginning to end. That objective truth should give us inward peace. When we see and remember the wounds of Christ, 
his hands and his side, as we look at the table before us, the bread and the cup, as we remember Jesus' blood being poured out, these, these point to an objective truth of our peace with God bought by his wounds that should give us an inward joy and peace. We, we are at rest. Even though we face challenges and sufferings and difficulties, we are at peace because we have peace with God through Christ. He gives them his presence, he gives them his peace, and he also gives them proof by pointing to his wounds, by showing up in their midst. He is proving to them, he is giving them uh, reasons to believe this is the same one who was crucified, the same one who had nails piercing his hands, the same one who had his side pierced, the same Lord is standing before you, resurrected from the dead. Look at my wounds, I'm the same one. Jesus piles up these encouraging resources for their joy, his presence, his peace, proof of his resurrection. Sometimes we, in making decisions about uh, some, some important step in the future, uh, making decisions between one choice or another, People often come up with a pros and cons list. You list all the pros on this side. Here's all the the positive things about this decision. Here are all the negative things about this decision. Sometimes young people make pros and cons lists about a significant other they're considering. Here are all the good things about her. Here are all the bad things about him. And they're piling up pros and cons. It depends on your personality too, right? Whether you're... Uh, a glass half full person or a glass half empty. If you're, you tend toward the negative side of things, thinking about all the bad things about a certain decision, or if you're mostly positive, thinking about all the positive things. So some of you might have more, more cons. Some of you might have pros. But I wonder if we, in, in relation to the Christian life, often think about all the challenges we face, all the difficulties we face, without counteracting those with all the positive resources that we have in Christ. If I asked you to think about all the things that are wrong with your life right now, you could probably give me a big list. All the things you need to improve, all the people you need to improve, all the situations you need to improve, you, can, you could rattle off a list quickly. And we might have more difficulty thinking of all the benefits that we have in Christ. And I would encourage you to counteract your fear and your doubt, to counteract your unbelief, your discouragement, by adding up all the reasons you have joy in Christ all the resources that you have in Christ, all the treasure that you have in Christ. The scripture tells us we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with Christ. Remember a few weeks ago, Matthew Hodges preached about our present sufferings in comparison with the future glory to be revealed. Our revealing as the sons and daughters of the Almighty God. It's not even worth comparing. And yet, we could become so preoccupied with challenges and discouragements, things that cause us to doubt, that we fail to remember the glories and the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. 
There's wisdom in the old hymn, Count Your Blessings. It's a simple hymn, but we would do well to pay attention to it. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will keep singing as the days go by. When you look at others with their lands and golds, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings. Wealth can never buy your reward in heaven nor your home on high. We have these same resources that the disciples had for our joy in Christ. He, he gives them his presence and we have the presence of God with us. We have the presence with Christ with us. Even though he is not physically present with us, he has poured out his spirit, put his spirit within us. You have the presence of Christ with you every moment of every day. You have his abiding presence in the spirit. You have peace which was purchased by his wounds. You have proof of the resurrection in the witnesses and the testimony of the Holy Scripture. We have these same resources and really we have better resources than most believers throughout history. We have the written word of God in our hands. We have the freedom to gather week by week to hear the proclamation of the word, to sing his praises, to worship God together. Consider the resources that we have for joy in Christ. And if you're looking for joy, if you counted up all the reasons you have joy from your earthly riches, it might buy you some temporary joy, some temporary fleeting pleasure, your popularity, wealth, Enjoy, enjoying hobbies, friendships, yet they will fail, fail to even come close to matching the glories and the riches that we have in Christ. He turns fearful disciples to joyful disciples with himself, with his own presence, with his own promises. Find your joy in Christ, brothers and sisters. And then Jesus isn't content to leave them in their joy, he, he wants to propel them outward to others to share this joy. You see this in verses 21 to 23. He says, peace be with you again. You didn't hear me the first time. Peace be with you. Peace purchased by my blood. And now here's what the peace is going to do with your joy. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And some have puzzled over this. What does Jesus mean, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you? Some have said, well, maybe it includes doing miracles and healings, doing everything that Jesus did. Maybe it includes primarily speaking and teaching like Jesus did. But I think we should make sure that we are clear that we, are, we have been sent out, that the disciples here are being sent out as witnesses and proclaimers not doing the exact same work of Jesus, but doing a work which proclaims the work of Jesus. There is one unique work of God in Christ Jesus, and then we are witnesses of that. We are proclaimers of it. We are announcers of the good news. 
Jesus said as he died on the cross, it is finished. This is the work that only he could do. And once he had done it, it is done. It is finished. He paid the price for sinners. He was lifted up to die on the cross for sinners so that all who come to him and receive him by faith have life everlasting. This is the once and for all finished work of Jesus Christ. There's no other atonement that needs to be done. There's no amount of remorse that you can do to fill up for your lack of atonement. If you have atonement, if you have forgiveness, it is complete in Jesus Christ. It is finished. And therefore, the disciples, and we by extension, are sent out as proclaimers, as witnesses, as announcers of this good news of the finished work of Jesus Christ. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. We also consider that Jesus' being sent, his mission was always marked by faith and obedience. We see this over and over again. His submission to the Father, his desire to do the Father's will, his, his desire to walk in a way pleasing to the Father. We too are sent out, marked by this close relationship to the Father through the Son to live a life of faith and obedience in fulfilling this mission. He says further to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a, another very interesting action that Jesus makes, followed by, by words. Here, Jesus is sending out his disciples, and he is empowering them by his own spirit to fulfill this mission. He doesn't just tell his disciples to go and send them out. He empowers them by his own spirit to be able to fulfill this mission. I think what's going on here with, with the breathing is another sort of acted parable in which Jesus is showing them that the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son to His disciples. Receive the Holy Spirit. It is my Spirit. It is coming from me and the Father. And I think we should see this not as the coming of the Spirit in total, because we see that in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost as the Holy Spirit is poured out. John Calvin calls this a, a sort of sprinkling of the Holy Spirit, a foretaste of the fullness which is yet to come. Receive the Holy Spirit. It's coming. Remember, one of the disciples isn't there. So I think it would be right to see this as kind of a, a foretaste, a glimpse of what is to come, of the empowering Spirit who will help the disciples fulfill the mission. Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on further to give them not only the empowerment to fulfill the mission, but also the authority to fulfill the mission. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you hold, withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I don't think that this means that we have the power to forgive sins or to uh, tell someone you're not forgiven. Rather, the power comes in the work, this work that he has given the disciples of proclaiming 
Jesus Christ is crucified for sinners. And through this proclaiming work, there is a division which takes place between those who are forgiven as they receive the message in faith and those who reject the message. There is this authority that the church wields in proclaiming the message and then receiving the testimonies of those who receive it and making a judgment on who has received this message and who has rejected it. And that's, how we, that's what we do with baptism and church membership. We, in church membership and baptism, we are affirming that we, the people of God, we see the credibility of your, uh, of your testimony and we see the fruit of salvation in your life. We see the fruit of repentance. We see the fruit of faith in your life. We, we affirm that we see all these things in you, not that we have a definitive judgment on someone's heart. And yet, Jesus here gives his disciples, and by extension, the church, the authority to proclaim the gospel and to receive into membership those who come to faith in him. The church holds the faith once delivered to the saints. As we're going to confess in just a little while, the Apostles' Creed. We hold the keys of the kingdom, the dividing line between those who receive the faith and those who reject it. And so for those who receive the message, the church gives a word of affirmation to those who have received it. And I think one, uh, one really helpful practice that has been uh, carried out through years and years in the church is that of a word of pardon or an assurance of pardon, especially in Presbyterian churches. Uh, other traditions have it as well. A word of aff- uh, aff- affirmation, um, a word of assurance to those who have come to faith in Jesus. It would look something like this. As we corporately, from time to time, do confess our sins. We, we pray together and we confess our sins of not doing the things we ought to have done and doing those things we ought to have done. Well, after that confession, I think it's helpful to have some sort of spoken word of assurance. Now that you have confessed your sins, any and all of you who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you have confessed your sins and you have come to him in faith, you are forgiven in Christ. There's something about hearing it audibly that assures us that we indeed are the children of God. This work of proclamation, this gospel proclaiming work affirms and assures those who receive it but declares condemnation for those who reject it. As you go about speaking the truth of the gospel, it will present a dividing line and those who reject your word, the word of the gospel, they have all the the anti-promises that we've looked at. There is condemnation for you who are not in Jesus Christ. You are separated from the love of God in Christ until you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. He is not with you and not working all things together for your good. Those of you who are not in Jesus. I think the the fear and the, the fear that comes from hearing those words make us all the more joyful that we have the promises. Though we deserve to be rejected by God, though we deserve condemnation from God, 
Though we deserve to be rejected by God and at enmity with God, he has given us all the blessings of God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, Jesus sends us out with this message. He gives us joy. He sends us out with empowerment and with the authority to do his work. Steve Rogers is a fictional character in the Marvel superhero universe. He is a uh, kind of a weakling. He's kind of a puny guy. Uh, he, he, wants to, he wants to be active in World War II. He's willing to do everything it takes to, to be involved in the world and uh, war and to fight for his country, but he had, does not have the ability. He doesn't have the power. And so if you know the story, you know what happens the military give him an experimental serum. I'd love to get a hold of that. Give me some of that serum. <laughs> and it has an amazing effect. He's turned into basically a superhuman guy. He's, he's ripped and he can do all kinds of uh, cool martial arts moves. He's a superhero. He becomes Captain America. And we, in, in this being sent outness as Christians, we may feel weak and puny like Steve Rogers. Like we, we don't have anything to offer. I'm not uh, strong intellectually. I'm not good at using words. I'm afraid of talking to people. I'm afraid of engaging with people. And yet, the truth of the matter is, he has given us the empowerment by His Holy Spirit within us. We, we are sort of superhumans, if you will. We are supernatural humans. We have been given the Holy Spirit of God within us. It's not your power. It is the power of God within you. You've been equipped. You've been sent out. You can go with joy and confidence. You, you don't have to be afraid fearful. You're not puny. You have the Spirit of God within you. Philippians 2, 12 through 18 tells us that we have been given the will and the ability to work for God's good pleasure. He's not only given us uh, the equipment, empowerment to do it, He's given us the will to do it. Every, everything you do from God has come from God. Jesus relieves us of our fears by reminding us of the promises of God, by equipping us, and by empowering us to work for His glory. It doesn't terminate in our joy as if we were just inward looking, but this joy is meant to flow out from us to others in serving and speaking. You, brothers and sisters, do not forget your mission. Be refreshed in your understanding that you have been sent out and empowered and equipped to work for the glory of God. It will bear fruit. And that's why we were excited last Sunday night as we talked about the future of Christ Church Rollsville. Not because we have the power in ourselves, not because we have the ability, not because we have the resources, but we have the Spirit of God within us, willing and working for his good pleasure. So I wonder, in thinking, if you were there last Sunday, in thinking about the things that we considered, I wonder what areas you have been mulling over, particularly in how you can reach out to others in love and speaking. 
Are you thinking like a missionary? Are you thinking strategically like a missionary? Not that you have someone as your pet project, but you see them as a person who needs to be loved. You see them as a person. You want them to know Jesus. We have been sent out for the glory of God to proclaim Christ, and he will empower us to do that. Let's pray together.